name is Shane Anderson and I'm with James Meese, a lecturer in digital and social media at the University of Technology, Sydney. We're watching YouTube. Oh my God, that is so creepy. That is the creepy video. We're watching a bizarre subgenre of children's videos on YouTube. Knockoffs of videos already popular with kids. Yeah. So this is the, the Finger Family song. Yeah. What are we looking at here? We've got animals, but they're standing. What's the worst thing about it is it's really bad CGI. So you've got a dog, a chicken and a bull. But... What makes them creepy is not that they're standing, because that's like a common trope in children's TV. It's that the CGI is so bad. I think the AKs are pretty bad as well. Oh, my God, I completely missed that. They've got guns. Oh, my God. This is the first time James has seen these videos, but today we are the 8 millionth viewer since February. Some of them are just shit. Cheaply drawn Spider-Man cartoons bobbing up and down on a screen, but some, like this one are definitely not safe for kids. Oh, my God. Are they going to kill the... They're going to shoot the bears in the pool. Are they going to shoot the bears in the pool? Oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a paint gun? So they're trying to teach green, but I feel like there's ways of teaching green without shooting green out of an AK-47. Like, it might just be me. Look at the cheetah's head, though. It's, like, really elongated. Oh, no, and... this is the creepiest. This is like a gorilla. It just looks like something you'd see in a horror movie. This video is just the tip of a terrifying iceberg. It gets a lot worse than this. Picture Peppa Pig getting rotten teeth pulled at the dentist. Picture Elsa from Frozen getting murdered by a clown. And you have an idea of the depths that these videos plunge to. And yet they've been inadvertently watched by millions of kids worldwide. It's all down to a loophole in the algorithm YouTube is still using to build playlists. Without even realising it, YouTube's algorithm created a perfect storm. You have a completely unregulated or underregulated space. Think of just how different this is to what you were watching as a kid. Everything that made it to your screen was carefully crafted. It's really tightly regulated on a production level, like educational theory goes into it. What do we actually want to teach two or three-year-olds in play school? You really were learning. By contrast, these messed up videos are what children's entertainment looks like when it's curated first and foremost by a machine. Basically, content makers figured out how they could earn advertising revenue by designing videos that would slip into the autoplay feature. They did this by manipulating keywords, creating cartoons that look semi-normal in the sidebar thumbnail, and even stacking the comments section with bot accounts posting random combinations of letters – all to make these videos look watched and popular. And why would they do this? Well, the more views you have, the more money you make. Is this the result of a broken algorithm? Yeah, I mean, it is. According to James, what's broken here isn't the lines of code or some technical glitch. We're looking at the social consequence. So an algorithm is broken when it doesn't produce its intended outcome or actively causes harm to the user. This subgenre of poorly animated gorillas carrying AKs is not the intended outcome of kids wanting to learn colours on YouTube. Something is broken here. These broken algorithms are more common than you think. 
James says another example comes from the predictive search function of Google. If you type in stuff like Hitler is, often what comes up first is like Hitler is my hero or blacks are, blacks are not oppressed. People using search engines were finding the empty search box wasn't the blank slate it appears to be, but actually it was coming preloaded with stereotypes, racism and fake news. Obviously these change because partially algorithms relate to your own search history. They're also related to everyone else's search history, to what people are posting online, and even the intention of the company that created the algorithm. Ultimately... It's a myth to argue that platforms are neutral or that algorithms are neutral. So how is this allowed to happen in the first place? Well, let's go back to YouTube. YouTube's algorithm really kind of prioritises engaging content. To go to, like, normal YouTube as opposed to YouTube kids, it's been found that YouTube actively surfaces conspiracy videos. The algorithm has found that, you know, quote-unquote extreme content is more engaging. It's a vicious cycle. The algorithm is designed to expose you to videos that are more likely to engage you, i.e. keep you using YouTube longer. And if videos of conspiracy theories do just that, then you have an algorithm that is broken. The question is, who broke it? Because when you ask tech companies, the YouTubes, Facebooks and Googles that developed the algorithms, they say this isn't their fault. They say they're not telling people what to upload, and therefore it's not their problem that these are the videos we find engaging. It's actually really hard to find who is to blame. And part of this lies in the language social media platforms use to distance themselves from what people post. These online media platforms are often referred to as ecosystems. I spoke to Babek Abedin, senior lecturer at UTS, about what this means and why this is so significant when it comes to broken algorithms. It actually reflects that social media has a number of dimensions. So obviously one dimension is the actual website or the actual platform as we call it. So now you could, it could be YouTube, it could be Facebook. So it's the platform and its features. I mean, the term ecosystem almost implies some sort of biological organism, right? Like a web of things that are interrelated. Is that, is it similar? I mean, social media has several dimensions and they are all living dimensions, which I mean, they're very dynamic. Things change. That's why the type of social media environment or let's say ecosystem we had five years ago, 10 years ago, it's very different to today because all the dimensions, all the actors and players in this context have changed. They have changed their expectation. They have changed their behavior. Therefore, the whole experience has changed. So who, like when something goes wrong in the system, who is to blame? I found it very difficult to point the finger to a particular actor in this game. The responsibility is shared between multiple actors and people and entities involved. So depending on what goes wrong, uh, there may be more than one person actor involved. I wonder if maybe the idea of all the actors participating in the ecosystem, if it makes people less likely to feel an ethical responsibility... If we're just one person in a big system, maybe we don't feel like we have a responsibility. In this game and with these different actors, they have very different nature. 
whereas this platform is being created by a commercial company which serves their own interests you know they are mostly listed companies in the stock market so here we are you know two different actors very different purposes who is responsible for fixing it the difficult question i think is not about so much about identifying responsibility because it's really clear it's like well if you launch the algorithm you're to blame the question is to what extent do those parties feel that the algorithm actually needs fixing and to what extent is there either social pressure or a legal mechanism to actually enforce that change after the break we're going to find out just how deep this river runs this is think digital futures Welcome back to Think Digital Futures, where we've been wading through the quagmire that is YouTube Kids on a quest to pinpoint exactly what is going wrong with our online media. Take this track, for example. You might recognize this as the melody of The Finger Family, a catchy rhyme that teaches not only how to identify the fingers on your hand, but also the members of your family. Daddy finger, daddy finger, where are you? Or maybe you're more familiar with this one, Finger Family Collection. Then there's the less anatomically possible Seven Finger Family. Or maybe you want to rave out to Choo Choo TV's The Finger Family song. These are just four of the nearly endless versions of the Finger Family rhyme, each shoddier than the last, automated videos vying to slip into your kids' YouTube playlists in search of money. The problem is it's hard to measure the impact of these algorithms when the online platforms aren't transparent about the mechanisms behind it. So most of the time, all we can actually see is what's presented to us. And that seemed like a good place to start. I'm Jake. This is my Netflix, which is actually under my boyfriend's name. So I don't have Netflix, but I use his more than he does. My name's Miles, and uh, I also don't have Netflix. My mommy pays for my Netflix. Hi, my name is Steph, and I'm on my partner Stephen's Netflix. I am on my little sister Tony's Netflix. So none of us pay for our Merle's Netflix. <laughs> yep. It's this economy. Netflix is an online streaming service for movies and TV shows, and it uses algorithms to personalize your homepage. The Netflix engineers have specifically said that their aim is to get the right titles in front of you at the right place and at the right time. I guess the point of this comparing our Netflix accounts is to see how the algorithm personalizes our viewing choices, how it perceives our tastes, what it thinks we want to watch. And I'm a little bit confused personally as to why it thinks I want to watch this particular movie starring The Rock called Central Intelligence. I got a plan. Might get us both killed, but if it works, it'll be a totally boss story. Cool. It's a picture of, that's Kevin James, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's The Rock and Kevin James. Talk. That is Kevin not Kevin James. James. That Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. <laughs> okay. Kevin James Literally, is the, the, the guy ex- from Kings and Queens. <laughs> They're the exact opposite person. Got my name. Okay, that's a very different movie. <laughs> 
love Santa Clarita diet. Something happened to my wife. I can't feel my heartbeat. What? And there's a photo of Drew Barrymore eating a large piece of red flesh. I also have Santa Claret Clarita. Clarita diet. It's a zombie show, as I understand, but it's also a different tile than what you have. So they're really wanting me to watch this show. Season two is out, but I haven't watched season one. And after this chat, still none of us felt the need to watch it. What we ultimately found is that personalization didn't always work in the ways we expected it to. Look at all my tiles and I see like, I see Black Mirror, Inception, Kill Bill Volume 2, all like Ocean's Eleven, Donnie Brasco. It's all men. I think, I think my Netflix might think I'm a, like I'm a bro. Yeah, for me as well. Like even on this page, when I search Pulp Fiction, Pulp Fiction is a close up of Bruce Willis. Willis. I have action and adventure, US TV shows. Netflix knows I'm a white man. There's a lot of, (laughs) there's a lot of white, white blonde-haired leading ladies. Yeah. Do you feel like this helps you find stuff to watch? No, no. I I think I purely go off what I hear. I don't think I scroll through Netflix. But there is a possibility that these mismatches could be intentional too. Netflix have also said that they try not to personalise too well in case it scares people off using it. Given that Netflix has quickly become a staple in a lot of our lives, this raises huge questions around what impact algorithms have on our sense of taste and even our attention spans. Are algorithms creating a sandbox of online media? Is it destroying culture? And if it were, how would we even know? It mostly has to do with the way in which the term culture has been long sort of understood and practiced. This is Ted Strefus. He's a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Colorado, Boulder. Ted says algorithms are quite literally having a moment. We live in kind of like a third moment of media. So the first moment was, you know, large scale, centralized, mass broadcast media. Second moment is the moment of narrow casting, where you begin to see, you know, much more sort of niche orientations to media and media consumption emerge. And then the third moment is this moment, which is the moment of personalization. His research is trying to understand the impact this has on human culture. It looks at phenomena that we see all around us happening. Things like Netflix recommending movies or television shows for us to watch, Amazon recommending products for us to buy, Facebook suggesting we become friends with certain people and not others and so on and so forth. And to just kind of ask the question, how did we end up here? Ted says that most of the features of algorithmic culture you can actually trace back to some kind of human equivalent. So it used to be that if you would go to a video store, we would ideally go to a clerk who would say, yeah, this is something that you might like based on the movies that I know you've recommended in the past. Or, you know, maybe a friend would introduce us to another friend as a way of connecting us. But now it is computers doing this work. And as a society, we're having a mixed reaction to this. On the one hand, Ted reckons traditionally we're uncomfortable with the way technology and culture are integrated. But these days, most of us don't seem too troubled by it. Well, we seem to have gotten over that right now. And so the algorithmic culture book is really an attempt to ask, how did we get over that? How did we become so uh, wedded to the idea that culture and computation could be something other than strange bedfellows? Your stance on the role of algorithms in our cultural lives has a lot to do with what you already think culture is. And figuring this out is easier said than done. 
in, in the words of the literary critic Raymond Williams, culture is one of the two or three most complicated words in the English language. And despite that, he managed to locate these three sort of broad rubrics or definitions. The first definition is that culture represents the best of what we have, like the Picassos and the Mozarts over the Reg Mombasas and the Vanilla Ice. You can see all the problems with that kind of a definition, right? The idea that some stuff is sort of quintessentially human, better than others. You know, people have really sort of rubbed against that definition. The second definition is this idea of objects and artifacts and ideas that humans create, the world we built around us. And the third definition is a social one of the culture of a certain place, like what you might expect when you go on holiday to Italy. These definitions aren't so distant from technology as we think. Even the word culture comes from a Latin word meaning to cultivate, as in cultivating a field using, you guessed it, technology. Ted says they share another distinct feature, us. They are profoundly human-centric, that in a sense, in each of those definitions, you can locate the figure of people front and centre. This is where algorithmic culture gets tricky, because the human isn't always so easy to spot. And some are worried that soon we might not be there at all. If we don't know where to find the humans in the algorithm, then we also don't know who holds all the cards. But Ted says it is a mistake to assume that algorithms are as powerful as they pretend to be. The claim to personalization in some ways has to be measured against the fact that within the context of algorithmic processing, you're often considered to be a type in a lot of ways, right? That you are the company that you keep. I mean, this is how uh, Amazon makes its product recommendations. Yeah, I think the the personalization, it seems very ominous and all-knowing, but in reality, it makes a lot of mistakes. And the relationship between, you know, your tastes and what you consume online, they don't always match up. You know, this is the other thing about algorithms and algorithmic culture, too, is, you know, the sense in which the technology always works. I mean, again, you can see this in all of the kind of meltdown over Cambridge Analytica right now, right? This idea that just because they had the data, they knew how to manipulate the election. You know, and again, I'm not entirely sure that I buy that argument. It's not to say that there was no effect. It's not to say that there wasn't any impact whatsoever. You know, but to claim that the technology, the software, the people working behind the scenes, you know, were singularly responsible for this outcome, right? It it just doesn't seem to hold water for me in exactly the same way that you're describing, right? How often does Facebook get the friend recommendation wrong, right? You know, however one defines wrong, whether it's someone you went to high school with who you hated or, you know, whether it is, you know, a product that they're trying to sell you in the advertisements that are always on the sidebar. I'll give you a great example of this. I used to get advertised all the time on Facebook, dress sweatpants. And I have (laughs) no idea what it was about Facebook's algorithm or my own practices that was compelling me to get these advertisements for dress sweatpants. But Do you mean like tuxedo I, sweatpants, like formal? They, they're they supposed to look like dress pants that like you would wear <laughs> with a suit, except they're made of sweatpant material, you know, like athletic wear. And I never felt compelled to buy them. I never felt moved to buy them. I don't know a soul who wears these things. And yet, you know, for whatever reason, my practices, my demographics, my behavior, my interactions kept calling forth the advertisement for dress sweatpants. As a, I guess, passive consumer of all these technologies, 
I do feel like there is an inbuilt power imbalance with algorithms. All the power surely is in the hands of whoever made the algorithm and the, the purpose that they're making it for. Yeah, no. And I mean, that's one of the weird things about algorithmic culture. You know, the, the promise about the internet was decentralization. You know, what we now see is exactly the opposite tendency. I mean, it is a profound recentralization of power. I mean, again, the fact that there are over a billion users of Facebook, and not just like subscribers to, but users of Facebook. That is centralization on a scale that we have never witnessed before in human history. And I mean, think about what it takes to get a billion people to do anything. I mean, in a given day, a billion people can be counted on to eat, sleep, drink. Complain online. And complain online. That's probably about it. You know, so the fact that we have arrived here is is a real testament to just how far out the other side we've gone. And as for just how far out the other side we've gone, I'll leave the last word to James Meese. What's broken is us. I think it's important for everybody to remember we're at such an early stage of this that there is just so much data to deal with. Facebook regulating content. Like, can you think about how much stuff there is out there that they need to make decisions about? When we're designing these systems, we have to realise that, you know, in a way we might want to think of them as a shortcut, but they might have broad-ranging implications. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures. This show is supported by UTS, 2SCR and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to find out more about the show, head to 2SCR.com slash thinkdigitalfutures. And if you're tuning in via your preferred podcast app, hit subscribe and while you're there, leave a review. Thanks to James Meese, Babak Abedin, Ted Strefus, and Steph Miles and Jake from 2SCR who all helped out with this episode. We'll be back with a new story next week. In the meantime, I'm Shane Anderson. Thanks for listening.